So if you have a Bible, go to the book of James chapter 1. We'll be there soon. But before we get there, I want to take you to a college class a number of years ago. It was a class where the professor was handling the subject of ornithology. You know what ornithology is? It's the study of ornithes. <clears throat> it was a study of birds. And uh, as it turns out, this professor gave a midterm exam and he told his students, uh, you're going to have to identify birds. That's what the class is about. And so they put it all together, came to class, and uh, the professor had already passed out the test and laid them face down on each desk. And he said to his students, okay, so you're not to turn that over until I give you all the instructions. You'll have the entire class period to do this test. And um, he said, so uh, think hard because this is a large portion of your grade for the final semester grade. And so when time came, he said, okay, you may turn your, your uh, test over and begin the test. And when they did that, they were greeted by 25 pictures of bird feet. And he said, your job is to identify the bird by its feet. Well, the class choked. Except for one student who was immediately mad, incensed he was. And he sat there for a few minutes and finally it got the best of him. So he grabbed that test and he walked up to the front of the class to where the professor was seated at his desk. And he said to the, to the professor, this is ridiculous. Nobody can identify these birds just by looking at their feet. The professor said, well, actually, he, by the time the student finished his little diatribe there, the professor was also angry, and he said to the students, you have the assignment to identify the birds by their feet. If you can't do that, you're welcome to turn your test in, and I will give you a zero right now. To which the student said, fine. And he handed the professor his test, and he turned to walk out, and the professor said, wait a minute, wait a minute, what's your name again? And the student stopped and he pulled up his feet. And he said, or pulled up his pants leg. He said, you tell me. <laughs> I, I think your reaction tells me which of you are the students and which are the professors. <laughs> so there's a series of problems going on in that whole exchange. The student had a problem with the assignment. The student also had a problem uh, with not having studied sufficiently. The professor had a problem with the student. And before it's over with, the professor had a problem with himself because he had drilled himself into a hole. Wouldn't it be great if that was an example of the worst problems you will face in your life? I don't know what, what problems you brought in here with you today. But I've been around long enough and I know human nature well enough. I think I understand enough of scripture to know that every one of us brought some kind of problem into this service today. The question becomes, what do you do with those problems? How do you respond to the trials and the suffering 
of your life? What's your perception on what you're going through, whatever it happens to be right now? It may be something as simple for you as a car problem, a mechanical problem with your car. It may be a relationship problem. It may be that you came in here with a problem that you have more month left than you have money for the rest of the month. Maybe a health problem. Any number of problems. We, we all bring them here. My question is, how do you deal with those problems? How do you see those problems of your life? My dad, um, he, was, he was unique in a lot of different ways. But when my brother and I were young, from time to time, we would come and, and we would tell our dad about our problems. Now, that's not really the best way to say that. We, we would whine about our problems in front of my dad. And my dad grew up a hard, hard kind of life on the streets in San Antonio and then beyond that. And dad got to where he would say to us when he would catch us whining, he would say, life's a rock and then you die. So just get over it. How do you see, how do you deal with the problems and the suffering of your life? James is going to help us with that, but I want to tell you, the help that he gives us in just chapter 1 of James is, is uh, it's challenging. Because James is going to give us in the two verses, that we're, three verses that we're going to read today, plus a little bit in John. But James is going to tell us that how we approach those problems, how we view those problems, is a critical element of your Christian life. So we just got through singing several songs. I was, I was intrigued as, a, as we were singing through them and I was watching the words go by. How many of those things are songs that hold true for us and they're good songs with good statements. I'm not picking on the song. I'm picking on us because I was reading some of those going, yeah, that sounds good, but how do we do that practically? So James is going to help us. Remember, as we started this series in the book of James last week, I told you if James is anything at all, it is a practical theology for us. How do we take what we believe about God and the life that he gives us and put it to work practically in day-to-day life? So we're going to see that today. We're in James chapter 1. As we get into that, before I read these verses, I want you to memorize two things. There will not be a test. It would, even if I gave you a test, it wouldn't be a test over the pictures. Two things I want you to memorize this morning and take with you for the rest of your life. Here's the first one. This is a test. Pretty simple to memorize that one. I hope by the end of this service, by the end of this sermon, you'll have good cause to really take that in. This is a test. The second one is actually a question. Here's the question. Where's God in this? You've heard me say that one more than once from up here. But now we begin to put it together biblically as James lays out for us how we handle and how we approach these problems where my dad would say, life's a rock and then you die. James says, your faith has to work. This is the test. Where's God in this? James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 Reads this way, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, this is not all James is going to have to say about testing and about trials. 
As a matter of fact, we find this whole first chapter is something of a bookend that he puts in here talking about trials. So everything fits together in this. We're just going to kind of introduce the whole thing today with these three verses. And, and so the, what are the two things I ask you to remember? Okay, I know the tr- preacher's wife got it because we've been living this for years. Okay, this is a test. Where's God in this? Okay, I'm going to ask you that a lot today. And by tomorrow, I hope that it's so baked into who you are and how you approach life that it will be natural for you with those two things. So we're going to make four clarifications. Actually, James makes four clarifications for this. If you do the math, this is a four-point sermon. So how long could this take? But let's see if we can make tracks through it all. Here's the first clarification that we get. He talks to us about the value of perspective. When it comes to the problems and the trials of your life, the struggles that you have, the first part of this is perspective. How do you see these things? So look at the first imperative. He writes this as a command. And I don't mind telling you, it's hard to get past this one, and it's going to take us a whole sermon to get past it, actually. But here's the first part of it. He says, count it all joy. We need to make sure that we get this right. We should not take that point of reference that says, praise Jesus, I got these problems. That's not what he's saying. Count it all joy, he says. We'll get to that a little bit, but let me just talk to you about the perspective side of this. First of all, perspective or perception of the problem is critical for us. We have to get it right. So let me take you into the world of counseling. I'm not a counselor. Uh, I've had a lot of training and a lot, lot of that kind of stuff through the years. Uh, and one of the classes, I had an advanced counseling class when I was at Southwestern Seminary long, long time ago. And they taught us that there are these different schools of thought when it comes to counseling. And so those of you who are counselors out there, you'll understand these and pick up pretty quickly on them. I'm not going to give you all of them, but there, is, there are two particular ones that I want us to get a handle on today. First of all, there is the cognitive theory in counseling, which essentially says if you change the way you think about a situation, it will help you cope with the situation. Cognitive, it's a thinking approach. The other one is a behavioral approach. And that, that approach, and that theory side of counseling would say to you, if you're having these struggles, bad habits or whatever, change the way you behave and ultimately your mind will follow suit. Okay, now you can pick and choose. I think it would be a mistake to pick one over the other. Both of them have a lot of truth in them. But let me take you to a real life example of how that plays out. I grew up, in a home where we love to push the limits that other people would not push. For instance, I remember well this ongoing conversation between my mom and my dad about when is the proper time to put gas in your car. So if you have an answer to that, um, don't tell me. Because I had to figure out on my, on my own. My dad's approach was, you, you can run that car. There's a reason that there's an E on your, your gauge. E means you still have enough gas to drive to Brownwood, Texas. <laughs> That's what I grew up with. And my mother, bless her heart, 
She, she would just tell him, Gene Road Trammell, you pull over and get gas at the next gas station. I grew up with that. And so my dad, remember, life's a rock and then you die. So that means we push the limits. And so when Teresa and I got married, I was kind of of the Gene Road Trammell school. Okay? There's still plenty of gas in there. You, you can run it to empty. You know this. You can do this. Okay? You can do this. Run it to empty and then see how many more miles you can get before you run out. <laughs> Don't call me to come pick you up. <laughs> so, that we, so Teresa and I took, you know, a generational thing. We took this struggle that my mom and dad had. We took it in. And so Teresa, she's kind of narrow-minded. She thought, you know, it gets to E, you need to stop and get gas. But I was not too sure about that. My, my champion phrase was, I've never run out of gas. So, we lived about a mile from our son's elementary school down in South Texas. And it was time to go pick him up. Teresa was, I don't know, 11 months pregnant. I mean, she was like way pregnant. And so we hopped in the car to go pick up Brandon from school. And uh, as we're driving out of our neighborhood, we ran out of gas. Because she didn't fill up the tank when she thought it. No. (laughs) It's all on me. It's all on me, right? We ran out of gas. It's South Texas, and it's in the fall and in the fall in South Texas where we live, the humidity is 900% all the time, and it's hot. It stays hot till after Thanksgiving. And all of a sudden, I found myself with this dilemma between cognitive, we have plenty of gas, and behavioral, my pregnant wife is having to walk with me to the school to pick up our son and back to the car. So there's these two perspectives that you take. Cognitive, I'm going to think my way out of this problem. Behavioral, I'm going to act my way out of this problem. And somewhere in between those two extremes, there's a sweet spot. James says, count it all joy. That's a cognitive decision that he's talking about. When you face the trials and the struggles and the pain of your life, James says, count it all joy. That's a perspective thing, and we begin with that. Here's a good truth for you. Our perception on the problems of our lives help us through the problems of our lives. Our perspective on the problems help us through the problems. That is, provided you have the right kind of perspective. This is so important with James in this uh, letter that he writes that he uses perspective or understanding uh, 17 times in the first 27 verses and only seven times in the remaining 81 verses of this little letter. James begins with, get the right perspective. And I've already given you the first of those two statements I want you to memorize. Now you know why. The perspective we take on the problems that we have in our lives is this. This is a test. So what are you going through today that moves you to that? How do you view the trials of your life? This is a test. 
This is a good point for me to ask another question for you. It's not one you need to remember, although I think it's probably worth remembering. The way you view and treat the problems of your life, do those problems defeat you or do they develop you? James is going to get us there, but the first part of it is that we make sure that we get the right perspective. Let's go to the second clarification here. And now we get to this word that is called trials. So what exactly constitutes a trial? I would have said this. Matter of fact, I did say this for a while. I'm backing off on it because I think somebody has come up with a much better perspective. But I think mine at least begins to get to where we need to go with this. I would suggest to you, at least have suggested through the years, that a trial in a Christian's life is anything that threatens or removes our sense of control. Now, I know that some of you are real control freaks. I don't say that with any kind of animosity or anything. It's just an observation. Okay, let me just go ahead and be totally honest. Every one of you are control freaks. In some level, at some point, the reason I can say that with full assurance is that's the essence of what sin is for us. We want to be in control. We don't need God until we do. And then when we do, we recognize that our own sense of the need to control is a losing battle. But it is the essence of what sin is for us. I will be in control. I will call the shots. That's why we need Jesus, because we can't get, us, get ourselves where we need to go. But here's a, here's a better uh, way to express what these trials are. This comes from a commentator that I like, the Baker Exegetical Commentary on the New Testament. The guy's name is McCartney. He says this, trials are the pressures applied against believers that threaten their well-being which may well cause them to doubt the sovereignty of God. Now, you see, that's better than what I said. That may well cause us to doubt the sovereignty of God. James writes this. If you go back to verse 1, if some of you are going, wait a minute, you never covered verse 1. We were in chapter 2 last week, and now we start in verse 2. So let's go to verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. James is writing to a group of Jewish Christians. By extension, he writes to all of us. But early on, remember last week we said this is probably the first letter of the New Testament we have as far as chronology written. James is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who essentially have been booted out of Jerusalem. That's where the early church started. We go back to Easter and some of those post things. We go to the first part of the book of Acts and we can see that. But because of persecution... That's Paul. You remember that part of Paul's calling, right? He's persecuting the church. So all of those things come together. James is writing to a group of people who have been taking it on the chin because they have identified with Jesus Christ. More than just taking it on the chin, they have been absolutely persecuted. And so the Holy Spirit uses that to just propel them into the reaches of the Roman Empire. James is writing to a group of people who understand this idea of trials. And on top of that, and maybe we get to some of this today in this crazy culture in which we are living. 
that because of our faith in Jesus Christ, remember James says faith has to work, but because of our faith in Jesus Christ, we now are some of the people who are in the crosshairs of the people out there saying y'all are nuts for following Jesus Christ. But it's, it's beyond just name calling now. There is coming a day if we're not already in it when you may well have to sacrifice in a culture that rejects Jesus Christ. You think we have trials now? Just stay tuned. It's important that we understand this. Our perspective needs to be this, not, okay, let me rephrase that. We do not need to have the perspective that we just sit in the corner and we wring our hands and we go, oh, wasn't it great back in the day? There's a good theological term for that approach. It's called dumb. (laughs) Levi Price, great pastor of this church, would say to us, just don't be dumb. This is a test. This trial that might even move you to doubt the sovereignty of God. Let me tell you what that looks like. It's when you're listening to these reports from doctors and they're going, we've done all we can do. It's when you get a text in the morning that says someone in your family has taken that terrible step that now lands them where they're not in control of their life anymore. This is a test. Doubts the sovereignty of God. Two things I want you to make sure we get about this. The nature of these tests that James gives us. First of all, he uses a term that literally means to fall into it. In other words, in other words, it's like you're just going about your business every day, living your life every day, and you're just walking along, and all of a sudden, boom, you fall into this trial. Maybe a great example of that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Remember that? He's on this road between Jerusalem and Jericho, and he falls into a group of thieves, robbers. No no, no fault of his own. All of a sudden, he's in this trial. Some of us here today are fighting battles that are not of your choosing and not of your making, but they are of your fighting today. Don't fall into the trap where you remind God how special you are to him and you shouldn't have to be going through this. James doesn't give us that freedom. He says, count it all joy to fall into. The other one, (laughs) he talks about these as being various, these variety. It literally means all sorts of. So today, if you choose to go to a place for lunch, that is a buffet. I want you to think about this word. You know the great thing about going to a buffet is you can have anything you want. There's all different kinds of food out there, okay? And you get to pick and choose. So this word, as we find James using it here, has that connotation that we are in all kinds of trials, And it's kind of like the flavor of the day trial today. And so this buffet says, well, you have a relationship trial over here, and so you could pick that one. Or you have this financial problem over here, and you could pick that one. Or you have this, this, I don't want to say mental, but just a perspective problem in your life where all you can see is the negative of everything, and you're going to fall down, and we're all going to die. Life's a rock, and then you die. 
We, we, we can pick lots of different kind of trials because we have a variety of them out there. That's what James is saying here. And so when it comes right down to it, my question to you today is, did, are you, did you fall into a trial? Did you make your own trial? And what are the ver, ver, variety, the various kinds of trials that you still could choose from today? It's a closed system. Nobody gets out alive. Nobody in this case gets out without a trial. So now that second thing I wanted you to remember, what was that one? So you're doing very well. So when you have all of these trials and all of this stuff, don't forget to ask the question, where's God in this? Where's God in this thing that is eating my lunch? Where's God in this thing that seems to have nothing but a black hole at the end of it for us to fall into? Third clarification that James gives us here, now we go back to and really deal with that count it all joy imperative. Let, let me read that again. Count it all joy. <laughs> what? Doesn't that sound a little ridiculous? I, I know it's scripture. Okay, I, I want us to, to hold scripture, but I think sometimes we, we ought to give ourselves the freedom to go, wait a minute, what? How do you see joy? All right, now, I, I need to tell you this, and, and I don't want you to get mad at me. My daughter was a cheerleader. I don't care if you get mad at me about that. That's history. That just is what it is. Uh, and I think I've told you before, Teresa had a job where she couldn't. Do, I was a cheerleader dad, so I was going to these meetings for the cheerleader parents, which meant moms. <clears throat> I'd write, well, anyway. Um, so my daughter was in cheerleading, and that was through school, from middle school all the way through high school. Uh, but she also did some of these, you know, so we, would, we signed her up in, in a... Uh, a tumbling class so that she could learn all the things that cheerleaders are supposed to do. But the thing that I got the most, and I had a niece, by the way, who was an exceptional cheerleader, and she was in these competitive cheerleading squads, and we went to a few of them uh, and, and watched. Here's the common denominator. This part I don't want you to get mad at me about, okay? But one of the prerequisites for being a cheerleader in those competition squads is that you have to have a face that's always And they may have fallen flat on their face, so they jump up and they have to smile, okay? Is it okay to be a Christian, to, to follow what he's saying here, count it all joy, and still not want to smile about it? Count it all joy. The word count means to process. It's to make a decision after weighing the facts and the circumstances. That what this, that's what this word means. So what Paul is saying is you have these problems that come at you and you don't have to just make believe. You have to choose. You don't just have to go, well, you know, pray that God is good all the time. Sure doesn't seem like he's good today with this problem. But you make the choice. Yes, it's a problem. 
Yes, your doctors can give you diagnoses that are hopeless in the end. James says, reckon it, count it, make the choice. It's all good. When Teresa and I were in college, I was making nearly no money at all. And we had a three-month-old son. By the time I graduated at Wayland, he was two and a half years old. And we, we were making no money. And so we would go to the grocery store knowing we have $100 to spend on groceries. That's not much today. In 19, none of your business, it was nothing. <laughs> and we would go through and I would keep track of how much money we had put into the basket with whatever food we were buying. Because I knew, we knew, that we didn't have any extra money. We weren't going to have any extra money. So we counted it up when we made our grocery list and then when we put it in the basket. We made a decision. We can't have T-bone steaks tonight, but we can have refried beans. Think about those trials and respond with joy. It's a, it's a delight. It's a state of being. It's not an emotion. I would even take that a step further now and say Craig Blomberg, a new, great New Testament scholar, says this, it is, this joy is an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated trust in God. Did you catch that? It's not about how you feel. It's about a decision that you make that you trust God in it. That's why you ask the question, where's God in this? Because if you can't see God's hand in it, it's going to be hard to get the right perspective that you have. This is a test. Where's God in this? And I choose to trust him. James says, faith works. It's active and it has to work itself out. I don't have time to go to John chapter 16, verses 20 through 22. But if we were to go there, we would find Jesus saying to his disciples, I'm going to put it in road tramolese for you. He's telling his disciples, they're going to kill me, and they're going to be happy about it. And you're going to be sad about it. But there's going to come a day when the tables are going to get flipped. You're going to be sad now, but when this happens and the resurrection comes, the tables will be flipped, and you'll be the ones who have joy. Not dependent on the circumstance. It's based in the promises of God and the power of God in your life. Many Christians break down at exactly this point in their trials. They get where they just won't see God in it. This is a test. The last one, clarification number four, which is purpose. Here's a statement for you. The perspective that enables us to, tra- to face trials with joy is rooted in an awareness of the purpose of the trial. Let me say that again. That's gold, okay? I don't say smart stuff very often. That's smart. The perspective that enables us to face trials with joy is rooted in the awareness of the purpose of the trial. James 1, 3, and 4 help us with this. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know what that word means? It means steadfast. Not a whole lot of bells and whistles here. Some, some will say patience. Some of your translations may say patience. But the idea is that you have this staying power and it stands in the face 
of the trial itself. And that staying power doesn't come because you're strong. It comes because Jesus is strong. This is a test. Where's God in it? There's a military connotation to this word. It comes from the Greco-Roman military life. And the picture is of a soldier who's out there and the only thing he has is what his government has given him to fight with. And that resolve that says, I stand for my people and my country. And I will endure sandstorms, bullets flying, explosions nearby. I stand because of my calling in this. It is a choice to stand in the face of your trials. I, I, I don't say that lightly because, Lord, don't we know that some of those trials can be so overwhelming that all you'll be able to say is it broke me. This is a test. Where's God in this? Be steadfast. So what does that look like? I have, I have a number of favorite preachers. One of your favorite preachers, some of you, died this week, Charles Stanley. Uh, it's amazing how many people I talk to that say, we watch you right after Charles Stanley. And I thought, well, there's a letdown. <laughs> One of, some of my favorite preachers through the years have actually been uh, Christian musicians. And uh, Stephen Curse Chapman, some guys like that who preach well through their music. And so one is this group of preachers called Casting Crowns. And they're old now, you know. I, I remember when they first came around. But uh, about 17 years ago, they wrote a song that fits this passage that we're looking at today. Here's what they say. I was sure by now, God, you would have reached down and wiped our tears away, stepped in, saved the day. But once again, I say amen, and it's still raining. As the thunder rolls, I barely hear your whisper through the rain. I'm with you. And as your mercy falls, I raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. And I'll praise you in this storm. And I will lift my hands that you are who you are, no matter where I am. And every tear I've cried, you hold in your hand. You never left my side. And though my heart is torn, I will praise you in this storm. This is a test. Where's God in this? Wherever else God is in it, he has his purposes beyond what we could even begin to chronicle here today. But we know this. James would say that that storm is intended to develop you, to grow you. And so I ask you again, as I did early on, does this storm defeat you or does it develop you? Let's pray. And as we go to pray, let me make sure that we understand
that the biggest storm any of us face is the storm that separates us from God, and that's our sin nature. Jesus Christ died as a way to pull you back to a relationship with deep fellowship with your creator. It only comes through Jesus Christ. It only comes when you put your trust in him. Your faith has to work, and his work for you carries you through. So what do you do with that? If you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior, that's the storm of the moment for you that, that he, he, he has the calming answer for you. You just have to choose it. So that's invitation for you today. If, if you don't know Jesus, don't walk out here without knowing him in a personal way. We'd love to use this invitation time to help you. Every one of us in here has some kind of trial. Some of them are bigger than others. Some of them are so intense that you can't see past just the nose on your face. Where's God in that? What do you do with that? Maybe the best thing you can do is surrender it to him. You can do that by coming and talking. We'll pray with you. You can do that right there where you are. But if you're fighting something that seems to be getting the best of you, then give it up and stand strong in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we give you this time now. Be glorified in it is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a Savior and life more abundant and free to